Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. It is, be, it is so good to be gathered together to worship the Lord this morning. My name is Andy Petrie, and I want to welcome you. I want to welcome those of you that are watching online and joining with us. We're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. When we, We've been looking at the life of Jesus and how he was sent to serve, and ultimately he's an example of what we're called to in serving the Lord. So if you would have your Bibles, uh, whether you're turning them on or opening them up, turn to Mark chapter 14 with me. We're going to be picking it up in verse 26. I'd ask if you would to please stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God as we read verses 26 through 50. This is what John Mark writes. He says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple preaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left him and fled. You may be seated. You know, I think it's important for us to, again, pause and just consider this weekend. 
It's Memorial Day weekend. Now around our country, there is a trend growing in a lack of patriotism and honor when it comes to the lives that have been sacrificed to keep the freedoms that we have. The fact that we're gathered here this morning is a direct result of the sacrifice of so many. And I think it's important that we ponder on that this weekend. You know, a few years back, I had a great opportunity to go with a friend of mine who was a physician for the Navy SEALs to visit the Navy SEAL base in Coronado Island just outside of San Diego. And while I was there, it was very interesting to walk and see there was a BUDS class, a group of of men who were training to try to become a Navy SEAL. We were watching them as they were out on the beach and, and working in the Pacific Ocean and just seeing the grueling tasks and the difficult challenges that were being put before them. You're gonna see a couple pictures here up on the screen. Uh, you'll notice the frogman. This is the area where they would actually stand every morning in front of their instructors and the frogman was always standing to the side with a sign that says, so you wanna be a frogman. And the guys would line up in front of the instructor and they would be tormented and teased and hazed and, and mentally worn down as they would go through their training. You could see where their feet were supposed to stand in front of their instructor with the flippers. Now it's interesting to think, they would go through an eight week training, the last week which was known as Hell Week. Now we know our special forces go through the grueling, difficult training to ultimately win the task and the honor of becoming the most elite soldiers in the world. But it was amazing to me as I was there and looking around, all over to the right you see this sign that says the only easy day was yesterday. And right below that, there was a bell. You can see it in the picture on the right. That bell was there for any of those men that during the training decided this is too much. I can't take it. And they would have to ring the bell in front of their entire class of buds. And they would take their helmet off and they would set it on the ground and they would be done with their SEALs training. They would not actually make it to become a Navy SEAL. Now note, the day that I took this picture was day three of the training, and there were already 43 helmets on the ground. But you think about this, the, the work that goes into ultimately accomplishing the goal. There's great struggle and suffering, and you know, many of us in this room are never gonna go through training to be a Navy SEAL, right? Can I get an amen on that? We're thankful for those who are and those who have, but you know, if I went around this room and I spoke to each and every one of you, I can guarantee there's been seasons of great difficulty and trial and hardship in each one of your lives. You know, it's interesting when we think about hardship and difficulty in our lives, we typically say this, that when it rains, it what? It pours. And we can relate with that here in, in Florida, in Southwest Florida, right? It's getting into rainy season. When it rains, all of a sudden it starts to pour. That's a whole nother level, am I right? But you know, maybe you've been through difficulty in your life and you're here and you're thinking like, man, I've had broken relationships that literally just, just tore apart my life. Or maybe you're here and, and you've gone through health challenges or you're going through health challenges and it's just so discouraging as you're going to the doctors and it seems like there's no simple answer as to what's going on and it leaves you in great despair as you're facing those challenges. You know, for many of us, as we aspire to do great things in our lives, it's amazing how difficult the journey is to ultimately get there, much like those buds trying to become Navy SEALs. And for most of us in this room that have been following Jesus for any amount of time in our lives, it's amazing to think that some of the darkest and most difficult moments in our lives 
were when we were being faithful to try to serve the Lord. Here's what I want us to see this morning as we unpack the moment that Jesus is in the garden in preparation for what's about to happen on the cross. That when we look at at how he faced ultimate affliction, Jesus here models how we should face adversity. And, and, And he models how we should face adversity so that ultimately we can effectively point people to our suffering savior. You know, when I come to this text, as I've been studying it over the last few weeks, I've struggled with it a bit. And I, I hope you have too, as you've looked at how Jesus actually goes about facing the cross. It's almost a little bit awkward to think that Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, and yet we see him face down on the ground in anguish as he's thinking about what's about to happen on the cross. Too often we breeze past the the affliction that he feels the night before he goes to that cross. And I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus is allowing us to see his struggle and all that he's about to face in order to teach and instruct his disciples and ultimately us on how we're supposed to walk through struggles and hardships and afflictions in our own lives. You know, the first thing I want us to see as we think about this night that Jesus was abandoned, betrayed, and rejected, that in the midst of this, Jesus still seeks to disciple even in the midst of adversity. Look back at our text, Mark chapter 14, verse 27. It says, and Jesus said to them, speaking to his disciples, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus here is quoting from the prophet Zechariah. He is saying, hey, this has already been foretold. When the Messiah comes, he's going to be stricken, he's going to be be captured, he's going to be afflicted, and in the midst of that, the sheep, his followers, are gonna disperse. They're gonna abandon him in the midst of this. And it's funny to me, the disciples, and by the way, they're the ones that are actually recording these accounts for us, so it's quite humble for them to recount this. But they point out the fact that they respond to Jesus and the proclamation of a prophecy of what's about to happen by saying, not me. In pride, they're like, I'll never fail. I'll never fall. Peter gets as bold as to say, I'll die with you if I have to. And Jesus has to stop him and say, you know what? Before the rooster crows, tonight, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. But you wonder, in the midst of this, as Jesus is with them and instructing them, one of the things that stands out to me is his care for them on this night. Jesus is worried about his disciples. And you can see it in verse 28. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I think the disciples completely overlooked that statement that Jesus was making. He's telling them, look, you're going to abandon me tonight, and it's okay. This was prophesied. It's gonna happen. This all has to take place. But what I want you to remember is when I've rised from the dead, when I raise from the dead, I'm gonna go ahead of you and I'm gonna meet you in Galilee. And I'll see you there. Why? Because Jesus has a plan for these men. He cares for them. Have you ever had a big day in your life? A big day that you had to get up and give a presentation or a big day where you had a test that you had to take? Maybe, maybe a surgery that you had to endure. What did you typically do the night before? I mean, if you're anything like me, I typically tell everybody to get away from me, right? I need time to focus. I don't want anybody in the house. I don't need any distractions because I need to be ready for tomorrow because it's a big day for me. Think about the day that Jesus is about to have the next day after he's down in the garden. He's about to face the biggest day in all of eternity. But let's stop for a minute. What is Jesus doing that night? 
Well, if we just go back to the upper room, you'll remember he's there with his disciples and Judas is with them. And he takes off his cloak and he wraps a towel around his waist. He gets down on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet the night before the biggest day in all of history. Jesus is modeling for his disciples and he's modeling for us that even when we're about to face the hardest days of our lives, even when we're in the midst of difficulty and dark moments, we still need to be thinking and serving others, loving others, caring for others. Many of us in this room have loved ones that look up to us and in the midst of our affliction, in the midst of our darkest moments, we have a chance to shine a light into their lives in the way that we handle it and still care for them even when we're dealing with dark days. Not only does Jesus do this though in teaching us this, I think it's important for us also to consider that Jesus in the midst of the pride of the disciples and their boldness is going to display great humility in the midst of being crushed. Jesus is going to display for them the importance of humility when we're going through dark days, when we're going through difficult seasons. Look back at our text in Mark 14, verse 32. It says, and they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. Now, there's three key ways that Jesus displays his humility. The first one is, is his humility is displayed in taking time to pray. The Garden of Gethsemane, what is that? Gethsemane, if it translated, means the olive press. And it's fitting for this night that Jesus is preparing to go to the cross because he's feeling the pressure. He's feeling the weight of ultimately what's going to take place the very next day. But Gethsemane was a garden on the top of the Mount of Olives that likely was owned by one of Jesus' followers. And it was a private place where Jesus could go and he could reflect and he could pray and spend time teaching his disciples in the quiet just outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it's interesting because Judas knows exactly where that place is and that's how he's able to lead the people there, ultimately when they wanna capture him at night. But as Jesus is going to pray, let's stop and think about this for a moment. Jesus is God in the flesh. And I can't tell you how many times in the scriptures we see in the gospel accounts that he takes time to go away and talk to the Father. He takes time to pray. He takes time to reflect and to hear from the Father, to, to speak his heart to the Father. Who are we to think that we don't need to stop and pray if the very Son of God did it on a regular basis? You gotta think Jesus is taking time to pray. Why would we not? Too often we spend time pouting instead of praying, especially when we're going through hard seasons. We spend too much time sulking instead of soaking in the word of God and allowing the Lord to speak to us in the midst of our trials. You know, when I think about the power of prayer, one person comes to my mind. His name is George Mueller. George Mueller was a pastor who lived in England in the 1800s, and he, he had come to a point in his ministry where he decided that he would no longer ask a human being for anything he needed. He would only ask his Father in heaven. 
He was a man of prayer, great prayer, and boldness in prayers he would go to the Lord. His ministry would spur from just being a pastor to ultimately opening up an orphanage all through prayer and asking the Lord to do the work for him, to bring staff, to raise the money, to give him the buildings. He was able to pour into 10,000 orphans throughout his ministry. He lived in the days of Oliver Twist. If you know that story, that play, that, that was written about the orphans that were living on the streets of England. That was the day that George Mueller lived in. But there was one morning specifically from his diary that was quite impactful that many people on his staff spoke about often. There was a morning they woke up and the children woke up and they went into the, the, the room where they would eat their meals for breakfast. They all came in and assembled and they got there and there was no food to eat and they had no money to buy any food. And I'm sure the staff was thinking, you need to go ask somebody for help. But George Mueller had committed that he would not ask a human being for help. He would only speak to his father in heaven. And so he taught in that moment through leading by example with that group of children that were there and his staff. And he said, okay, we're gonna stop and we're gonna thank the Lord for the breakfast that he's going to provide this morning. That's a bold prayer when you have no food and no money. But he went on and he prayed and he thanked the Lord for the food that they would receive. And his, his workers say that literally the moment he stopped praying, there was a knock on the door. They opened the door and there was a baker. And he said, I could not sleep the whole night. The Lord pressed on my heart that I needed to make bread for the orphanage. And so he comes in with loaves of bread that he's bringing in to be able to feed the children. And the workers say that while the baker is bringing in the bread, there's another knock on the door. They go to the door and open the door. A milk cart has broken down in front of the orphanage. And the milkman asked them if they would be interested in taking all the milk because he needs to get the cart back to get it fixed. And George Mueller smiles because his father showed up as he does in the moments that we need him. We have to be intentional in seasons of difficulty to take time to pray. But look here at what's happening with the disciples in this moment. They're in a, a night of great testing. They're in a night of, of great temptation. They've already been warned they're going to abandon the Lord. And what are they doing while Jesus is praying? They're sleeping. See, it's so important that we remember in difficult times to make sure that we take time to get down on our knees and ask the Lord for help. The second way that Jesus displays humility is he displays humility by showing us his distress, by allowing his disciples to have access to seeing this. It says in the text that he takes Peter, James, and John further into the garden, and they're there to actually see what's transpiring when they're not asleep. Look here, and, and I want to take us to Luke chapter 22, verse 44. It's Luke's recording the same account, but he gives us a little bit more detail about some of the distress that's being displayed as Jesus is experiencing the stress and anxiety for what's about to unfold. In Luke 22, verse 44, Luke records this. He says, in being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The wave of anguish that Jesus is feeling as he considers what is coming next causes the, the subcutaneous capillaries to burst and him to sweat blood from his pores. Now this is hard for us to really fathom. Why is Jesus struggling so much? He knows he needs to go to the cross. He knows he's gonna die. He's already proclaimed it to his followers. He said, look, I'm gonna die and three days later rise. Why is he in so much anguish? 
The question we might ask is, is it the physical pain? Is it the whipping that he's going to receive? The torture, the torment, the nails, the suffocation as he hangs upon the cross? Well, let me tell you, that is not what Jesus is feeling this distress and anxiety about. Look back at our text together again in Mark chapter 14, verse 35. It says, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, not yet what I will, but what you will. See, Jesus here is pointing to the hour. He's pointing to the cup. For us to understand why Jesus has this anxiety, we need to understand what the cup is talking about. If we look back at Old Testament scriptures, throughout the prophets, throughout the Psalms, the cup relates to the wrath of God being poured out. Throughout the, the prophets, we, we see many accounts where God is judging a nation because of their disobedience and their, their lawlessness and their cruelty, and he would pour out a cup of wrath upon them. Jesus here, as he's preparing for the next day, is thinking about the cup. He is going to drink the divine wrath of God for the sins of all mankind for all of human history. And we might stop for a second and say, well, what exactly does that mean? Well, we know that the wages of sin is death. But the death here that Jesus is about to experience is not just a physical death. He's going to, for the first time in all of eternity, be separated from the Father who is going to forsake him on our behalf. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit are in perfect unity for all eternity past. Perfect communion, perfect fellowship. But yet Jesus, for the first time ever in eternity, is going to have the Father turn his face away from him and reject him for us. I, I tried to think of how to illustrate this. There is really nothing that captures it, but one story I thought of that pales in comparison but gives us an idea is I'll never forget when I was 18 years old and I drove home from school one day. I parked the car in the driveway and I looked and my dad was sitting outside of our house. And my father had been crying. I could see he was still crying. His face was white. He looked sick just with whatever was going on. I walked up to him and I said, Dad, what is going on? And he hugged me and squeezed me and embraced me like I have never been hugged before. And he continued to sob in my ear. And I said, Dad, what is going on? And he said, your mom just filed for divorce. Our relationship is over. Physically, it was taking a toll on my father that it literally was breaking him. Now, some of you here can relate with this, right? We've had broken relationships. What does it do to us physically? It destroys us. It makes us sick. We get sick to our stomach. It affects us. But think about that worst moment you've ever had in a brokenness in a relationship. It pales in comparison to what Jesus is about to experience when the Father puts the wrath of all sin upon him and turns his back on him so that he can save us. Now it makes a little bit more sense why he's laying on the ground, why he's sweating blood, why he's in such anguish. And also he's allowing his disciples to see this. Why? Because without the suffering, there is no salvation. Without the wrath of God being poured upon Jesus, we are not gonna receive forgiveness for our sins. The suffering is the means of our salvation. 
Jesus is displaying it for his disciples. Not only that, the prophet Isaiah spoke of this some 700 years ahead of the ministry of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verse four, it says, surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. The amazing thing is, just like those Navy SEALs that know that they're gonna be tormented in order to get to the other side and become a SEAL, Jesus knows the anguish he's going to face and yet he keeps taking the next step forward. And he's allowing his disciples to learn how do you handle suffering when it comes when you're facing it? How do you work through it? it was, as we see Jesus praying, as we see him communicating with the Father, it's amazing how often we, we do the opposite of what Jesus is doing here. When we struggle in our lives, we either avoid the suffering and run from it, or when we are suffering and struggling, we hide it so people don't see it. But, but what's happening here is discipleship leading people well and ultimately allowing them to see how God works in the midst of suffering and difficulty, we have to open ourselves up and allow people to see us struggle, allow people to see us working through difficulties and hardships. Why? Because that is how salvation came into the world and suffering is a tool that God uses in our lives to make us more like him. Ultimately, George Mueller actually gave us a quote where he talked about this. He said, God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hand as a means. I say and say it deliberately, trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. We should take them out of his hands as evidences of his love and care for us in developing more and more of that faith which he is seeking to strengthen in us. Too often we buy into this idea that following Jesus equals easy. That his salvation is enough and there's no struggle that we will face. But it's amazing that Jesus actually teaches us that the, the student is not greater than the teacher. The servant is not greater than the master. And just as Jesus had to suffer in order to bring salvation in the world, the very method for proclaiming the salvation that comes through suffering is by his own people, his own followers, suffering and suffering well to be able to point people to Jesus. Now as we think about Jesus here in the garden, it's amazing to me how Jesus not only knows what the will of the Father is and understands what he's called to, but he's willing to actually do it. He's, he's going forward. It says, you know, Jesus is demonstrating ultimately his humility and acknowledging that he's going to yield to the Father's will. We, we've heard this prayer many times over, right? Where Jesus is in the garden. He's asking for the cup to pass, but he's willing to say, not my will, but your will be done. He's acknowledging that ultimately he has a plan and a mission that God the Father has put him on and he needs to complete it. You know, Paul talked about this in Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight, as he was teaching the church about how to have the same mind as Christ when it comes to humility. 
This is what Paul writes. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this is the culmination of Jesus's humbling ministry. It started the day that he stepped out of heaven and did no longer count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to take a form of a servant. But the completion of the work is the cross. And so Jesus knows that while this is impossible to consider, the idea of being separated from the Father as he takes the wrath of sin, the wrath of God, upon himself, he knows that he must go forward and do what the Father has decided will take place. Now the question I would ask you is how often in our lives do we know what God wants us to do and we don't do it? How often in our lives do we come into a time of hardship and we say, Lord, if you really want me to serve you, you need to take this hardship, this suffering, this difficulty out of the way. See, the thing I think we need to see is we're looking at Jesus and looking at how he's suffering. He doesn't run away from the suffering. He just leans into the Father's will in the midst of the suffering. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. We need to lean into the Lord and discern what his will is, even if it includes continuing forward in that suffering. Surrendering ultimately to his will. And then once we surrender to his will, we do the next step that Jesus does here, which is carry it forward. We see that the next thing that Jesus does is he carries the Father's plan to completion. Look back with me at Mark chapter 14, verse 41. Jesus says, it is enough. The hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 44, now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. This is amazing to me. Jesus, after laying on the ground in agony and calling out to the Father, walks over to his disciples and says, get up. It's time to go. And he starts walking right toward Judas. He knows why Judas is there. He knows what's about to happen. And you know what? He surrendered and committed to complete the plan that God has set before him. And he walks toward Judas as Judas comes forward to betray him with a kiss. Now let's not diminish this for a moment. Jesus was just washing his feet in the upper room hours earlier. Judas was in the boat with Jesus when he spoke to the wind and the waves and they ceased. He was there when Jesus raised up the cripples and gave the blind sight, made food out of the small little meal that a young boy brought forward to feed thousands of people, yet Judas is here for 30 pieces of silver to kiss the Savior and betray him into the hands of evil men. But Jesus understands this and is willing to go forward because he knows that he has to complete the work of his Father. Look what it says here in verse 48. Jesus is speaking to the mob that has come out against him, and he says, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
but let the scriptures be fulfilled. You know, Jesus is pointing out something really important in this moment. That mob has not come to get him until his father allowed it to take place. They could have wanted to capture him in the temple, but it wasn't the time to be captured. They could have wanted to seize him earlier in his ministry, but it wasn't the time. Why? Because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. You know, Jesus' ministry in the first, his first coming, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. Over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Why? Because he came to carry out the Father's plan to completion. He's there to get the work done that his Father has called him to. Now here's the question I would ask you. In the midst of our suffering, our difficulty, and our service to the Lord, are you willing to acknowledge the Father's will and then do it? Are you willing to surrender and sacrifice, face additional suffering if the Lord calls us to it, but do it in a way that we can bless those around us and ultimately shine a light that's the darkest moment in our life and it'll shine the brightest for people to see and know the suffering Savior who ultimately died for them. See, Jesus here is laying out a model for his disciples to know how to live through suffering. Now, we might ask the question of why. Why do we need to suffer like Jesus? Ultimately, it's not to pay for sin. Jesus is the one sacrifice who paid for all sin for all time. Our suffering, our difficulty, our hardships are not to pay for our sins. That's been covered by Jesus completely. But as I mentioned earlier, Jesus' suffering is the means of our salvation, and he's decided that it's ultimately the method for the proclamation of the gospel. You would say, well, Andy, how do you get to that? Well, let's just look at history for a second. The book of Acts, when did the church grow the most? When they faced persecution, when they faced tribulation, when their leaders were martyred for their faith in Jesus, the church exploded and people came to faith in Christ. Why? Because his followers were suffering well to point people to their suffering Savior. You think about missionary stories. Countries that come to faith in Christ. I think of Jim Elliott and his friends when they went down to Ecuador, ultimately to reach the Alca tribe. Those men had to give their life on the beach to, at the hands of those savage people, ultimately so the whole tribe would come to faith in Christ. You think about Adoniram Judson who went to the, the Burmese people. He lost seven children and three wives that died while he was there. The first eight years of his ministry, only one person came to faith in Christ. But ultimately, the seeds that he had sown and the deaths that he died and his family died led to that entire nation coming to faith in Christ. Over 600,000 becoming a part of a church in Burmese, which is now Miramar. See, there's something about our suffering that proclaims to a dark and dying world the light of the gospel and the fact that Jesus has taken the wrath for us. Because when people see that we're willing to suffer and suffer well, they have to ask the question, why are you doing this? And in the midst of it, God is growing our faith as we can live through suffering and, and pursuing him. You know the Apostle Paul wrote of this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, and I thought this was very profound, the way that he spoke this. He said, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up 
what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church. The Apostle Paul is proclaiming the ministry of the gospel, the planting of churches, the discipleship of the saints. It happens through Paul's suffering. And he even goes so far as to say that in his body, he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, what in the world is he talking about? The only way that people are going to see the suffering Savior is if the followers of Jesus are willing to suffer for the sake of bringing that message to people. Paul is pointing out that if you want to disciple people, it doesn't happen while we eat donuts and drink coffee. It happens when we sacrifice and we pour out our lives to the Lord to proclaim the greatness of the glory of our God and the ultimate price that Jesus paid by giving his life on the cross, not just his life, but the broken relationship as he received the wrath of God on our behalf. There's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and it's the one Savior who went to the cross for us. But here's, here's a message of a little bit of hope I want to give you, because you're thinking like, Andy, this is tough. You're telling me I need to suffer for Jesus. Yes, I am. And it's not a message you hear very often, but I do want you to hear this. We're called to sacrifice and to suffer for Jesus. But here's an amazing promise we have. You know, you go back to that story of the Navy SEALs. I told you at the beginning. My friend, who is a physician, worked with a team of physicians that cared for those buds as they were going through the Navy SEAL training. You know what their job was? To make sure that not one of those soldiers died in the midst of this intense training. The whole time, they're checking their vitals. They would make them swallow pills that would actually send a frequency out of how their vitals were in the midst of their training to make sure that they did not lose a single one of those soldiers as they were going through the battle of learning to become a Navy SEAL. And there's a picture in this for us. Because while Jesus had to face the ultimate affliction, he promises that as we go through suffering, he'll be right there with us. That he'll be by our side every step of the way that we'll never be alone. Why? Because he was willing to go it alone ultimately to bring us back into relationship with the Father. And now he walks with us. It doesn't mean he's gonna take the suffering away, but it means that he will be there to strengthen us. Jesus says that if you would come after me, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus is telling us that if we want to follow him, we need to follow him in being willing to sacrifice and ultimately pour out our lives for others. You know, I mentioned the statement at the very beginning of this idea that we have of whenever we're facing difficult times and difficult seasons in our lives, we often say, when it rains, it, right? And we think that that means the idea that when we're going through difficulties in our lives, it seems like it compounds and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. But did you know that we're actually misquoting that saying? That saying was popularized by a company called Morton Salt. You see the picture up here? Morton Salt in the early 1900s actually had developed a new product. And they used a, a, a compound called magnesium carbonate that they combined with the salt. And the intent behind that was that even when the salt would get damp or humid or wet, it would still pour. It wouldn't get stuck together. It would work, and you can see it in this, this ad that they would run, when it rains, it pours. The girl's holding her umbrella in the rain, and she's holding the salt in her arm, and it's pouring out the back. Why? Because it doesn't get clumped together. It still pours out even in the rain. 
We're misquoting that. You realize that? When it rains, it still pours. Think of this when we're going through trials in our lives. Think of this in the moments that you're facing affliction and great difficulty, that if we lean into Christ, if we lean into his teaching here as he worked through suffering and we pursue God's will above our own, when it rains, we can still pour out the love of Jesus. When it rains, we can still proclaim the gospel and the goodness of God. When it rains, we can still have victory because of Jesus. So now when you're in trouble or somebody's in trouble and they say, when it rains, it pours, Pause them for a second and say, let me tell you what that's really talking about. Because Jesus has given us the victory even in our suffering. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I'm hearing about this suffering savior who took the wrath of God on my behalf. And you would say, I've never put my personal trust in him for for my salvation. I wanna give you a chance to do that right now. Because in scripture, it says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All you have to do is profess faith in Jesus and believe in him to cover your sins. I mentioned the wages of sin is death. That verse continues to say the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have not trusted in him, you need to do it today. For those of us that are here, And I know in a room this big, there's many that are going through trials and hardships right now as we speak. I want you to look to Jesus. Look to the example of what he revealed in his suffering. And remember that when we suffer well and we submit our will to the will of the Father, when it rains, it can actually allow us to pour out the love of God. But we need to have faith We need to trust in him. And the amazing thing is, even the disciples, when they failed, they still had the promise that Jesus was gonna be with them on the other side. So I wanna encourage you today to pursue him. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you for how you have blessed us. Lord, thank you for allowing us to see Jesus as he is working through suffering in his life, as he's thinking about the weight of the cup of the wrath of God that he's going to drink the next day on our behalf to save us from sin. Lord, I pray that we would have a faith that allows us to be bold and to suffer well so that the light of the gospel can shine forth, so that the world would see our suffering Savior and all that he was willing to do for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this Memorial Day weekend as we think about the sacrifice of so many, as we're reminded about the sacrifice of the most important, your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.